Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Ari Nave. We'll be talking to him about his experiences as a design anthropologist, and we'll be talking about what the competitive advantages there are in being a design anthropologist in the area of product design. We also delve into the internal politics of organizations and this idea of corporate culture. So sit back and look forward to an interesting conversation. Hi guys and welcome back to The Human Show. You are here with Corina and Angel um, and today we are speaking to Ari Navi. Am I, am I saying it correctly, Ari? Your name? <laughs> yeah, close enough. It's Ari Nave. Ari Nave. Okay, welcome. Uh, we are very happy to have you here with us today and um, I'm going to go right into it and kind of um, start with my first question, which would be, what is the definition of technology and anthropology? Uh, I guess I would use a quite a broad definition of any kind of artifact that humans have some kind of implicit control over and that therefore has some impact on their lives. So it could be both a, a technology piece in the sense of what we're typically thinking of as a, an iPod or a cell phone, or it could be an arrowhead. It's something that's been modified by people to serve a certain function, and it seems to me to fall under the um, definition of a technology. Great. How about anthropology? The definition of anthropology? <laughs> <laughs> for you, um, yes. Yeah, well, for me, it's any part of any discipline that in some ways has a, a look at human beings, particularly in the context of culture, as opposed to uh, biology or, or psychology as the primary center of the discipline. And Ari, I would, I would love it if you could tell a bit to us and also to our listeners um, about your own career path um, in this field with, with technology and with um, anthropology. I started at UCLA as an undergraduate uh, under Peter Hammond, who was my advisor. And originally, um, my research was looking at the interaction between humans and uh, non-human organisms uh, coming from a biology background. Mm. And then... I started doing my graduate work also at UCLA, and originally I was interested in public uh, or common pool resources and the tragedy of the commons because I was coming at it from a sustainability perspective. So I was interested in why it is that you have incidences where you have large common properties that are used sustainably, which goes against the predictions of rational choice theory of classical economics. Mm -hmm. I did my work in Ghana uh, by the, up in the Volta um, River looking at fishermen. Um, and so that kind of led me into this uh, space of game theory and, um, and kind of the uh, early behavioral economics space. Uh, then that eventually led me to uh, try to understand how these basic dynamics of cultural transmission can shape behavior and uh, I started studying also with uh, Rob Boyd, who looks at dual inheritance theory, 
particularly how evolutionary forces shape cultural evolution as a system above and beyond uh, genetic systems. Yep. And then my uh, doctorate was in Mauritius, looking at why it is that um, when you have sustained inter-ethnic marriage in pluralistic societies, uh, ethnic group boundaries don't erode over time, which was also predicted, kind of the analog of the rational choice model for culture, uh, which was that eventually you would have what they called, quote-unquote, the browning of society or the creation of a common denominator culturally and ethnically, uh, but that just doesn't happen. I want to ask you why is that, but then I'm thinking in my head, this is a podcast about humans and technology, Corina, so stick onto the subject. <laughs> I just find this this topic that you are just talking about extremely fascinating and such a so relevant, um, especially in multicultural spaces. But I, I don't want to stay, I want to stay off topic now. <laughs> sure. So um, I want to ask you, how come from that, this fascinating topic, you have moved into what you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a roundabout answer in the sense of I was accidentally introduced to strategic planning uh, while I was living in New York. Uh, there was, um, there's an anthropologist uh, who was, at the time he was working for DDB, uh, people know him as Dr. Bob, and um, it was the first time that I uh, was exposed to the notion that anthropology might be used not in an academic setting, and I found it super interesting, partly because, uh, well, for a couple reasons. One is the pace is very fast, uh, so you, you get to do a lot of learning very quickly. Uh, it's also relative to the funding that you have in the, in the public sector or in the academic sector, you're much better equipped when you're given a task to do from an anthropological perspective. And the other thing that I found super interesting is working in the corporate space is you, you basically have a back door into corporations as your ethnographic field site. So e even though they're your clients technically and you're not doing anthropological work for, for hire about them, what you do is you get to see the way big organizations and big corporations operate. Uh, which for, <clears throat> for me was really interesting because I came to it from, a, I think, a very kind of traditional academic background, which was a little bit conspiratorial and mm -hmm. also um, assumptive that corporations were much more efficient and effective than they actually are, given how distributed this decision making could be. Uh, so that stuff uh, for me was really interesting. And what type of projects do you uh, normally do in that space today? Well, that was more traditional planning. Mm -hmm. So working within the context of ad agencies and planners are typically tasked with understanding a user group to help the agencies create better communication. I often found that from a, a, lot, a lot of times agencies are being tasked by clients to find marketing for a product that's kind of subpar to begin with because they haven't done uh, the adequate user research to begin with to make the product really fit user need. And so what I found myself oftentimes advocating and then executing ethnographic work for clients to get a better sense of their users and their user needs uh, before any marketing was done. So it was always moving up the product pipeline, as we call it, um, to get to the, the design stage, the kind of fuzzy front end of the design stage. Mm -hmm. And so I did that so often, eventually I decided just to get out of the more traditional ad agency structure so that I could focus on that uh, more directly. Yeah. And this is what you do today? It, it varies a lot. So it really depends on the client and where they are in that design cycle. So sometimes it still is, I still do work that's in the branding space 
for organizations, and I still do work uh, for communications, but uh, more of the work is done in the kind of product development phase or the experience design mm-hmm. phase. Um, but the common denominator is really looking at the users um, as well as bringing behavioral sciences into the equation because very often um, the work that's done is kind of um, in the absence of any real behavioral sciences and that, that can lead to really costly decisions for either marketers or for companies or for any organization, really. Yeah. So from your experience working in that space, um, what, what type of relationship have you seen users or people build with, with these technological products? And to which extent what you have seen kind of contradicts or um, highlights some, maybe some unseen spots um, in the perspective of those that design them? Oftentimes, people who are designing technology platforms are not very informed about some basic principles of human behavior. And that leads them to create designs that can be, for example, erroneously overly rational Mm -hmm. or that kind of ignore the social context, which is so important for people's decision making and behavior. But I do think more and more enterprises are recognizing how important it is and how it's a competitive advantage. And so they are looking to understand how to intertwine knowledge of human behavior into the designs themselves. And I think mostly it's um, it's thanks to behavioral economics uh, that that's happening because it's been such a driving force uh, from a publicity standpoint. Yeah. I, I really like what you're saying. As these kind of threats are really resonating through through the other discussions that we have with our other speakers um, into the advantages of bringing social science in because it gives that contextual um, view. But it also kind of, in some ways, challenges the ingrained um, ideas that the people that design the products have about what what that product is supposed to do and how and how do you need to inform about it. So... I was wondering, it seems like it's it's almost like two different worlds, right? And in these companies, they have their own ways and practices of building stuff. Have you seen in any of these practices moments where they acknowledge the agency or the power of, of the user over the design of the product and where they have found ways of, of bringing um, that person truly inside the process of, of building something? Uh, you mean like from a participatory design standpoint? I think um, definitely, but even within participatory design, like there's still an assumption that the power lies with the designer, um, and and the person is brought depending on how you do it, right? Because it could be that you go out there into their social world, understanding the contextual reality of how they would would integrate that product into their life. But I think there's a, almost a symbolic act in in going out there and spending time with people in their environment, which seems which takes the power away from the one that designs and put it back on the person that is going to use that product, you know? Yeah, well, sure. I think there's, there's, a lo- there's a number of reasons why there's obstacles to that process. And part of it is about power. You know, mm-hmm. I think designers are always reluctant to give up control. And um, that, that's both to the user, but also oftentimes designers find researchers to be uh, very threatening because it's another um, form of erosion of their expertise mm. on what users want. But then there's other obstacles as well, which is sometimes there's fear about 
um, exposing secrets to the public and leaking. I worked on a, a project for a big headphones manufacturer, and they wouldn't they didn't want to release prototypes into the wild because they were very fearful that that would somehow lead to some public disclosure. Hmm. And that really interfered with um, getting good feedback because it's hard to get people's experience wearing, uh, you know, with, with a wearable in a lab setting. It could really interfere with the refinement of the product design itself. Hmm. Uh, so part of it, part of it is about politics internally and the designers feeling like it's their core insight that's driving the design versus that of a user. It always gets framed in this that kind of Steve Jobsian <laughs> um, reference. Mm. Uh, this like lore that somehow Apple was just against any user feedback because mm. users don't know what they want or need. I hear that you know you hear it over and over again, even though there's so much um, evidence to the contrary, and there's so much design out there that just doesn't work well, hmm. um, especially first iteration and again that com- that comes to the to the craft of how you're getting feedback from users which is a whole other issue because uh, there's all the part of the other problem is that there's a lot of uh, mediocrity in user research which undermines the capacity or the credibility of the process of getting user mm. feedback as part of the design process because bad user feedback sometimes is worse than no user feedback, but yeah, yeah. What 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 would be those areas of mediocrity that you've that that you think are critical to to drive this process? So I have found that in quote unquote design oriented organizations, there's this assumption that designers should be and could be doing their own research. Whether or not they should or should not be competent at doing research, the fact is many of them are not classically trained in that skill set. And so they're, they're tasked with and, and will often execute user research to the best of their ability, which is, um, you know, there's a lot of variance. And so that kind of creates a certain degree of noise um, mm. for those who are trying to advocate for more user research. I gotcha. I think this is, on one side, something that helps them probably retain that control, right, over, over what the product because they're probably filtering also the information through their own kind of lens. But then on the other hand, if they're not trained um, how to engage properly, that, that leads to mediocre results. Also about just, it's about value. It's about economic externalities and value creation. So from a corporate standpoint, uh, they want to be efficient. You know, everybody's trying to do lean, lean models of innovation. And so the idea that you would have some specialized uh, personnel they're conducting research as opposed to uh, the, the designer doing the research creates a lot of overhead. You know, my understanding is one of the reasons why IDEO is both so so good at design as well as so expensive is because there's a lot of overlap between u- user uh, research folks and design folks along the entire spectrum of a project. Mm. And most organizations don't want to have that kind of duplication of effort. Yeah, and so it's. In their mind, it's better to have the designer do the research, and it's very difficult for them to assess the hidden cost there because um, it's the cost of lost opportunity, it's, right? And and um, how you actually quantify that um, and capture that is difficult for an organization. You just don't know 
you don't what you don't know you've missed. Yeah. So I think that drives a lot of it as well. It's not it's not so much necessarily that the designers themselves are these overly uh, arrogant power seeking individuals. It's not like that. I think um, to some extent you have designers who would love to have researchers as um, collaborators, but that's not an option for them either. Hmm. So they're just, um, the power lies with the structure of the organization that makes those um, economic-based decisions. Yeah, partly. And also, I also wonder when you go into, you know, the the kind of pedagogy of, of designers and where they get their training um, and how they're exposed to what research would be interesting to understand, um, even what they understand as being the kind of elements uh, re- required to conduct uh, good research and why. You know, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of designers um, are conducting research that they think is high quality uh, based on the information they have at hand. Yeah. So how is it, how is it for an anthropologist to go into that reality? You, you were mentioning earlier that in, in a certain way you're doing like a double ethnography where you're studying the, studying the organization but also studying the users. But at the same time, like it feels as if, you know, all the, the practice of anthropology and I mean, you're, you're kind of like going inside a culture that is not necessarily prepared to, to welcome you in, you know, um, or I don't know if there are conditions of integration of an anthropologist there that would make the work um, easier. Yeah, well, now it's a little bit different for me because I kind of have self-selecting clients who come to me specifically because they're interested in how mm-hmm. to leverage behavioral sciences <laughs> into their design process. So it's a little bit different. But uh, when I did work at large ad agencies, and I, I would be I would have a client for a year or years, some of them very large organizations, oftentimes uh, we would have to sell the research in surreptitiously. So we would we would sell in the research as a function of A, knowing that we would, in the process, uncover a whole slew of insights that would then inform future product design, but going into it under the pretense of it being about market intelligence or something mm-hmm. like that, something that was easily digestible to the organization. And a lot of them have market research divisions or just research divisions. And so like the budgets for them are nominal if they've already paid for the retainer fee of the agency. And if you can convince the agency that this is going to lead to some um, kind of client retention, uh, that's how you would sell in the research. Imagine like I, I would imagine a traditional anthropologist trained in academia to do ethnography in a specific context and with specific objectives and leading to a specific purpose and under specific conditions, you know, moving into this completely new reality where uh, the drivers are completely different and the application also is different. Um, What would you say to, you know, let's say some of our listeners are contemplating maybe entering the applied field or um, considering if it fits them or not. Um, What would you say to them, to those that are contemplating entering that path? I mean, there's definite trade-offs first. You know, it's hard for me to know ultimately which is a better path. I think they're both really interesting and valid paths, and one doesn't have to be at the, at the exclusion of the other. I'd also say there's, there is a significant learning curve because especially when you leave academia and you enter the private sector, you realize just how ritualized academia is in and of itself. And even learning to communicate in a enterprise or a business uh, context, you have to start using different language and yes. different approaches to communicate 
uh, relative to what you would do in academia. And I remember early on, I would often get kind of thrown out of the room for being too academic or too esoteric, you know, <laughs> or too erudite or some, some kind of like it would, and it was a cultural issue. Mm. And so partly it was about selecting the language. And the, but then there's all other issues as well. Like the time factors are very different mm. in the enterprise. And so the nature of the research you're going to conduct is different. And the period you have to kind of do synthesis and produce results is different. Mm. It's different. And the nature of the results themselves are very different. Yeah. So it can't be dense textual uh, artifacts. You have to produce much more easily digestible, uh, efficient artifacts. Mm. So all that will impact the practice itself. Yeah. What about the, the second part, which is basically observing that new, that new cultural world, doing the ethnography of the organization? Would that be of a, an additional benefit? Is that a skill that, that the, the social group, the new social group of the corporation acknowledges as, as valuable um, and, and does something with that information? Or Yeah, it depends. So typically, because well, anything that you find out within the organization is completely bound within the organization because you end up, you're, you're operating within very strict confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is whether or not the organization itself is very interested in that reflexive yeah. kind of analysis yes. of culture. And, and most of the time, I'd say that's not something that's on the table. Um, I've just started now working in the cultural change space mm-hmm. where the task at hand is actually an analysis of the corporate culture and then its transformation. It oftentimes, it'll accompany like a digital transformation. Yeah. Um, but then there's this realization that you can't simply change the technology and then expect everything else to change with it. It doesn't work that way, which kind of leads to the discussion for, for corporate leadership for the first time of, well, what actually is corporate culture? Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's this ingoing assumption that my corporate culture is, A, my vision and values and norms, and that's kind of the defense around what they consider corporate culture, which is quite erroneous. Yeah. And two, that somehow this emanates from the founder or from mm. the senior leadership mm. and it trickles down to the masses, which is yes. also erroneous. So yes. that kind of opens the door to, to them understanding in a much more nuanced sense um, what actually is their corporate culture, how much control do they have and how it relates to their, to their brand, for example, and how can you modify it. And how, how can't you modify it? Because there's yeah. a lot of kind of failed corporate culture processes going on. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, like, maybe it's a, it's a bit of a weird question for our non-anthropology listeners, but can an anthropologist do a project of culture change? Like, well, I, think it's I, think, I think we're the only people who can really do a, a culture change process. And so I think... How, how, can, you, am, am how, I, how can you assist in a cultural change? Like... I'm just I'm just now remembering all of my professors that I, when I first started learning what culture is and how it's constituted and how it, it's performed and how intensive and, and lengthy the processes of change and transformations are of a specific group, you know. So yeah. I'm just imagining, like I, I from my own experience working in a in a corporate um, space as an anthropologist, like then wanting a process of change of. I don't know, four weeks or two months or right. three months, right. right? So yeah, well, it's a that's impossible. And yeah. so the first yes, the first stage is for them to understand what what you mean by culture transformation. Yes, and so I always default to kind of a 
Um, and maybe it's a little simple, but it's a, it's efficient. So I use uh, Marvin Harris's kind of cultural materialism model. Uh, basically, you have infrastructure, structure, and superstructure, mm-hmm. where and all of those components intertwined are the, are the are the encapsulation of culture. And so it helps for for decision makers in an organization. It helps them understand that the culture doesn't just constitute these kind of uh, symbolic notions. It comes really down to work workflows and work practices and mm-hmm. governance yes. and reporting mm-hmm. and incentive structure. Um, and once they understand the interrelationship between mm-hmm. all those things, then they're like, oh, well, we're actually changing the whole kit and caboodle. It's not just we're changing <laughs> one component. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and once that realization kind of happens, um, then you can have a discussion about timeframes yeah. and process. Yeah. And, and then also um, in that conversation, you begin to kind of um, explode the notion of trickle-down culture change. So that they're like, well, obviously what the C-suite um, believes and thinks doesn't really have effect uh, with boots on the ground in our division that's over in Helsinki mm-hmm. because people could care less. The, the, the people on the plant floor uh, are, are doing their own thing. And so if what we're talking about is transformation of the organization, then there needs to be a bit of a um, bottom-up process to, yeah. to buy into, and it takes time. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so that that was kind of like the origin of my question. How can an anthropologist do a corporate project of, 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 of culture change? Because it's kind of, yeah, I think in that context, it, it, seems, it, it seems a bit more um, true to, to form. Uh, I, I, I still struggle to, to kind of put that into a, in the context of a big corporation, you know, especially a, a big corporation with very rigid hierarchic systems and procedures and very specific visions of, of how it should be led and, um, and, and a very specific power structure? Well, I think there are, there are answers to those questions. So one is mm. there are wedges. If you look at, for example, Frederick Laloux's work on corporate reorganization, it's a great wedge because mm-hmm. it's, it comes from that, that culture and that space and it's, it's uses the language of that space. And so uh, there's an opportunity there for um, senior leadership to look at and adopt, or at least be open to a process of large-scale transformation um, that affects thousands of people. Uh, but then the question becomes: Is what's the actual mechanisms yeah. of cultural transformation? And again, this is where anthropology is prerequisite to it. Yeah. And so there are within the discipline. Spaces that look at what are the actual, what's the machinery of cultural yes. transformation? Yes. Uh, what, you know, how does culture evolve? And however, whether mm. it's dual inheritance theory or quote unquote memetics or whatever it is that you're using as your model, there are, there are processes, um, and marketers also know this, there are processes to change people's behavior. And so then it's really about turning that inwards into onto the organization. Yeah. And what's the very kind of granular step-by-step process yeah. at which you're going to um, infiltrate or inculcate within the organization this new way of doing things that's sustainable, that doesn't get squashed by yeah. the, the the kind of desire for a stasis that exists within an organization normally. Yeah. Do you ever deal with ethical situations in during these processes? It, to internal culture change processes? Yes. That's a tough question. There's a larger ethical question, which is about any kind of change 
any kind of behavioral change program, mm -hmm. which is what constitutes consent <laughs> exactly. in terms of being, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, because people are so subject to cognitive biases, mm -hmm. knowledge of those biases and the ability to manipulate behavior by leveraging yes. cognitive biases, mm -hmm. it could, I guess could be seen as somewhat problematic. I'll, I'll give you an example. So once I was working on a financial product and they were interested in how to create win-win situations for, for, for the subprime credit market. So people have poor credit, mm -hmm. wh whose pathway to credit in their mind was through a secure credit card. And one of the problems that they saw was that in the way a secure credit card works in the States is you put down, say, $500, and then you get this credit card, and it has a credit line of $500 based on the money you've given as collateral. Mm -hmm. And then you use it as a credit card for $500. And so if you charge up $500 of purchases at the end of the month, you have to pay off your purchases. Uh, but then you get your $500 credit comes mm -hmm. back. The problem with that is sometimes people who apply for and acquire a secure credit card see it as I've given $500. I then went and spent $500. We're kind of even Steven. Mm -hmm. I don't really have to pay you back because I've already I've kind of prepaid you back. Yeah. It, it's confusing. It's conflated with prepaid credit cards. And so that creates a, a, a double negative in the sense of um, it causes a chargeback on the credit card for the credit card company, which creates overhead uh, costs. Mm -hmm. And the person using the credit card has a, a worsens their credit history. And so they were interested in how to motivate people to basically pay off the uh, secure credit cards so that uh, they continue to use the secure credit cards and they would build their credit and so one way to do that perhaps could be something like loss aversion, where you would create um, a separate, the, the $500 that you deposit doesn't just kind of go into the vacuum of the credit card company, but it goes into this very identifiable other account mm -hmm. and it's still seen as yours. Yeah. And if you don't pay off the debt or the balance on the card every month, you actually lose the money in that account. Uh, and that loss aversion can be a very potent incentive for folks. Mm -hmm. And so that could cause people to actually pay off their credit card balances so as not to lose, mm -hmm. even though it's the same dollar amount, not lose the other amount. And so there's an example of where you've kind of, in a sense, you're manipulating people, perhaps for their own good, to have, quote unquote, better financial behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but you're doing it in a way that's that's very manipulative. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't so it's a really tough question. I mean, it gets to the to the core of um, kind of the distinction between behavioral economics and classical econ economics, and the kind of political flavor that classical economics um, has, and the kind of nanny state uh, criteria. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, I come from a space where people, where marketers are constantly trying to manipulate people. So I guess the part of the issue is um, what's the what's the intent. Of the, of the manipulation, not just the act of the manipulation itself. Yeah. The intent is, like you said, all of those things around consent. Um, I think I've worked in marketing. It was my first, my first career. And I remember, you know, working in those positions, I always had this impression that I have more power than I actually did. So working in those corporations at those levels, you are constantly um, trained um, to believe that 
that you have the power to influence millions and hundreds of millions of people with your messaging, <laughs> um, yeah, your product. And, you know, I remember being in meetings for Shampoo where we were discussing how essentially crucial for somebody's heart and mind and sense of happiness is the flavor of strawberry versus the flavor of vanilla, you know? <laughs> and people being extremely esoteric about how a woman would engage with a flavored shampoo. And, you know, like now looking back, it seems so, I, I was like, oh my God, you know, like, did I really, did I really believe that? And at the time I actually did. So, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting in those spaces and you're really groomed to, to believe in this power of manipulation over, you know, fast moving consumer goods. And you go out there and you, you see how people choose and use products and engage with them. And it's completely different. That was, that was my experience. Right. Although I would, I would take it a slightly different way, which is. What I have found is that with any, say, any um, brand group, uh, you know, any any constellation of people charged with uh, helping a brand, promoting a brand in the market, suffer from another kind of bias, which is the loss of perspective. <laughs> yes. Because what mm. you do every day, day in mm. and day out, mm. you want it to be important because you want your life to you want it to feel like your life has significance. And so you, you kind of have no choice but to think that this is essential. And so you lose perspective of where your shampoo sits in the life yeah. of the consumer. Mm. And um, I don't know that it's so much because you have this need to feel like you can manipulate people as much as because you have this need to feel like your life has meaning. And therefore, it must be that people need to have this flavor, <laughs> the scented shampoo. Because otherwise, you're, you're, you're left with the, the opposite, yeah. which is... You're spending all this work, all this energy on something that may be fairly insignificant to most of the people yeah. most of the time. Yeah. But, you know, like I remember for me sitting in those meetings, as the, and, and you, I think to a sense you're right, like there is a, there is a discussion to be made around your meaning and your wa value and worth within the organization. But it's not necessarily your value for those people that use your shampoo, but your value versus or with other departments inside of the organization, right? What do you bring to the table as a marketeer, you know, or what do you bring um, to the table as a creative person inside a corporation uh, versus those people that come from supply chain or those people that come from sales um, or other finance, for example. And then you, you kind of you want to create those stories of incredible intense meaning to kind of sell the value of marketing itself yeah. inside those systems. But this, and this kind of relates to the earlier point we were making before, which is uh, what's interesting about large enterprises typically is they're, they're kind of like a low-level conflict stateless society. Totally. Where you have these basically tribes that mm. are in this mm. very insecure state of a truce where yes. everybody has their territory and their power mm -hmm. and what everybody's interested in is the sustaining of the status quo because they don't want the truce to be disrupted for fear that they would it would erode their power structure and so whether you've got engineering or sales or whatever marketing or operations um, they're very resistant to any form of change and that kind of actually uh, feeds into the conversation we were having earlier about corporate culture change processes. Part of part of the issue that you have is that organizations are built typically mm. to resist change, and so it becomes a double whammy because oftentimes um, the leadership will come and say, "We want to create a much more fast, agile, risk-taking organization," 
which is antithetical to the nature of the organization as it mm-hmm. is. And then the process for that transformation is in itself uh, kind of resilient to change. And so yes. you have to create a, a process that can somehow override or, or kind of work around the resistance that's already built into the organization's core structure. Yeah, I, I can see that you need to have a certain personality profile or a certain interest into these processes to kind of like that type of a job, you know, uh, yeah. or to be, I have a lot of colleagues that are anthropologists and they're still in the academic path that, that, that they're not interested in those type of processes, you know, um, but I think, I think especially for, for those people that are contemplating maybe a move into the applied sector, I think all of that space of the organizational culture and, and how it works and, uh, and how, you know, I think you can't really avoid it, not even when you do just consumer projects. Um, so I think it's really critical to kind of look into that and, and, and kind of figure out, do I want to be in that space? Do I want to work in that space? Because it, it's going to influence all the work, right? Right. And it just, you know, you have a different kind of influence on the world uh, in one sphere versus the other. So if you can help a large company have a major transformation, you're, you're affecting both the actual employees of the organization and you might ultimately be yeah. affecting a much larger through the you know the services or products they're making but you're not necessarily kind of evolving the discipline so you know that's the trade-off i mean i wonder because if you look at into the history of anthropology still i mean it did some time a promise of transformation of culture no no well i don't know it was a, i don't know if there was like a false promise or it was a built on kind of some antiquated notions of culture you know old school cultural evolutionary models so i don't i don't know yeah i think that i've been listening to some podcasts that talked about the topic of intervention in anthropology and you know what does it mean to do anthropology and and do it uh, to articulate interventions in cultures rather you know it, it can be because doing intervention in a corporate culture or doing intervention into uh you know um a, a culture, a social uh, culture that is not a corporation, but it's a social group suffering from inequality or something in 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 an NGO, for example. It's still kind of, it's not that different in its essence, right? No, no, no. And I don't, I don't really typically treat one type of enterprise different from the other. Hmm. You know, whether it's a B corp or a nonprofit, oftentimes they're more similar than they are dissimilar. Yeah. Um, I mean it more in the sense of. There's the applied practical space uh, that you can have effect you know, on, the, on the ground. And then there's kind of the advancement of the theory. Mm. And I find that when you're operating within the applied practical space, there's less opportunity to be really spending your energies developing the theory. And that might just be because it, you know, there's an attention economy and you're spending all your energy on the on the first, so there's just nothing left for the second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but would you say that if you stay within a field for a long time, you, you kind of can, maybe through the length of your experience in that field, advance a theory of or no? I, well, I think there's a lot of um, opportunity for anthropologists who have been in the private sector, applied anthropologists, going back into academia later hmm. um, and having knowledge transfer. Because I still find that on the occasional times that I'll go to an anthropology conference, um, oftentimes the kind of um, conceptual models that academics are using to understand the private sector are really off base. Yeah. 
and poor descriptors of the reality. And yeah. so even that basic understanding of, uh, you know, what's such a driver in our culture uh, should be better informed. Yeah. Um, so you're like a lo- uh, you're like a an anthropologist with a very long ethnography, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and very then, long yeah. Well, I this has been fascinating, um, and I think especially for our listeners that are kind of um, in the academic space, um, but not only for them. I just think I just find your reflections on on corporate corporate the corporate world so thoughtful and and profound. So often we hear this 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 binary thing that you know corporations are evil, capitalism is evil, neoliberalism is evil. They're all there inside those tiny little cubicles um, to take our money and destroy our lives. You know, so um, it's rarely that we get to speak to somebody that has such an in-depth knowledge of what is happening in the social environment of a corporation. But yeah, Ari, thank you so much. Our time is um, is up, but thank you so much for you know taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, thank I you. appreciate it. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.